Good morning, Grace Orange. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20 and please stand with me to read God's Word. I'm going to do that first. We do that every week. We read the Word. What we're going to see today is that Jesus loves his church and he wants his people to love his church so that it would grow as he intends and the world would know that Jesus is the only Savior. Now, some of you might be new to grace, and you, say, you might ask the question, um, why do we stand to read God's word? That's kind of weird. That's, that's really out of the ordinary, and it is. It's out of the ordinary. We don't usually stand up to, um, to read things, and um, the question is, is it biblical? The answer is yes. There are a few instances in the Bible where people stood up to read, but do Christians everywhere do this? The answer is no. Uh, is it commanded in the Bible to do this? No. So why do we do it? And my best answer is this. I want us to do this out of respect for God and his word. And because his word is out of the ordinary. His word is extraordinary. His word is supernatural. It is from him. And we are really declaring as we're reading it, we want to remind ourselves this. This is God's word that we're reading. It's not man's word. It is God's word. And we are under him and his authority. And so I am privileged to stand with you and read the word. I'm going to read Acts 20, verses 1 through 16. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter of Berea, the son of Pharos, from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending him to go by land. And when he met, when he met us at Assos, he took, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this, this day you've given us, this privilege you've given us to, to gather together Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that it is true. It is without error. It is perfect. Thank you, Lord, that you use it 
to change our hearts. You use it to rearrange our priorities. And I pray, Lord, today that you would have your way in our hearts and that we would see, as you open up our eyes, we would see wonderful things in your word. And we pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Please be seated. It's no secret that Jesus Christ loves his church. So much so that he purchased it with his own blood. Acts 20, 28 says he purchased the church with his own blood. Now, our love for Christ's church isn't always so obvious, is it? We say we love each other. We don't always show it. We don't always express it in a demonstrative way, and Paul showed it. Paul showed his love for the church, and that's what we're going to see in this passage today, several indicators of Paul's love for the church that we ought to be practicing as well, but we know we don't always do it. In 1 John 3.18, we're instructed to not merely love with word or tongue. Don't just say you love people. And we throw that word love around like a lightweight word, don't, don't we? It's a heavyweight word. It sent Jesus to the cross. John says, don't merely love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Don't just say it, do it. Paul, when he was writing to the Thessalonians and he was telling them how, how he ministered among them, said this. He said, we were among you like a nursing mother tenderly caring for her children. And we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our very lives, because you'd become very dear to us. He goes on to say, we were like a father with you. He says, I, we loved you so much. In Philippians 2, verse 7, Paul says, look, I, I'm even being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Here are believers that are going through horrendous difficulty and Paul is being poured out upon the sacrifice and service of their faith. And what does he say? He says, I rejoice and share my joy with all of you. He, he loved the church so much. So how can we, though, here we are today and, and we realize that our love is, is, not, is not so demonstrative at times and not so evident at times. Christians are very easily swayed by being judgmental towards each other or by uh, being un outright unloving to one another, even while we say to brothers and sisters in Christ that we, that we have issues with. Hey, I love you so much. Or we'll, we'll preface comments with, I love them dearly, but... So how can we stop merely saying that we love each other and actually show it? Wouldn't that be awesome? Now, some of you are saying, yeah, when are people going to start showing me love? This is not the point, okay? Paul wasn't going around saying, I can't wait till someone shows me some love. I, I, I'm not feeling the love. No, he's out doing this regardless if anyone shows him love or not. And what this passage shows us is what a deep love for Christ's church looks like, what it looks like. We see it in Paul's example, several, several indicators of Paul's love for the church, and we're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to give you several of these, these indicators, really, and, and the first one we see 
is encouragement. Encouragement. The first two verses. Verse 1 tells us that after the uproar ceases, uproar equals riot in Ephesus. Um, where we left off last week was where there's huge riot had happened because of Jesus and his followers. Because as the gospel is growing, as the word of God literally is dominating the city of Ephesus, there are people who hate the gospel and hate Jesus and therefore hate the church who, are, who their business is getting cut into because people aren't buying silver statues to their false god anymore. And so last week what we saw is that Paul gets literally swept into this riotous gathering in Ephesus and it's a big disturbance and people are, are really stirred up. Some of the people don't even know why they were in the big theater in Ephesus to begin with. And what happened was, as the word of God dominated the city, the city pushed back. Those who hated Christ and his church pushed back. And we do see people repenting of their sins and becoming believers. But the rest are rioting because of their sins, because they're unbelievers. And we learned, last week, we learned three things to help us take the high road in heated times. And I, I asked first hour this, and... I only got two positive responses, so I'm going to ask you two. I, I just want to see by a show of hands. It's a very simple question. Did any of you, as you went through this week last week, have a moment or two or three where you said, hey, I remember what I heard in the Word last Sunday, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to take the high road here. Any of you? Just give me a, by a raise of your hand. Okay, you are way better than first hour. I'm just saying right now. Now, I'm not sure if third hour is going to beat you or not, but... Can, can you just raise your hands one more time, just really high, so I can see them? I, I'm wearing glasses here. Okay, praise God, right? Praise God that we could hear the word and then say, I want to put that into practice. The things we saw last week, the things that we learned, and they're simple things, but if you want to guard your heart and take the high road in heated times, number one, you've got to listen up to God and his word and to wise friends as they give you advice that might not always be comfortable. And secondly, you need to lighten up on your agenda and seek God's will. And third, you need to look up to God in prayer and dependence. Lighten up, listen up, lighten up, look up. And that's how you can take the high road in heated times. And I think that's what we saw Paul doing last week. Well, verse 1 tells us that the uproar ceased. You know what that tells us? That the city clerk's speech to the people worked. It was successful. We don't even know the name of the city clerk. All we know is the uproar ceases. So what does Paul do? Paul sends for the church to come to him, believers to come and gather together. So the, the believers in Ephesus are gathered together. He gets with them. What does he do? He encourages them. That's what he does. He encourages them. This is awesome. And, and by the way, if you have someone in your life that encourages you on an ongoing basis, you know what a treasure that is. You know what a gift from God that is. Now, after he leaves there and he departs for Macedonia, verse 2 tells us that he goes through all these regions visiting churches, and he encourages them too. In fact, he gives them lots and lots of encouragement. So people in your life that God has put in your life that give you lots and lots of encouragement, you're really thankful for them because it encourages you when people encourage you. The idea is, and the idea in the New Testament of encouragement is, is very strong and is very you know, meaty, it's very weighty. It, it means to come alongside someone. It literally means to console them and to comfort them. And you know how you feel when you get consoled and comforted when you need it. 
The Greek word is parakaleo, and it, it has two words put together, to call and to come by the side. So to call alongside, to come alongside and give help when it's needed. In Acts chapter 4, we read in verse 36, when we first met Barnabas, we realized that his name, his, his real name was Joseph. But he had a nickname from the apostles, which means son of encouragement. He, he's out there encouraging everyone. And so Barnabas is known to be like that. In fact, if you remember back when Paul was first a believer, he goes to Jerusalem. He wants to associate with the church. Okay? He's, been a, he's been a believer for a little while now. He's proclaiming Christ. The very church he wanted to destroy, now he loves Jesus in the church, and the church doesn't want to accept him. The church says, we don't think you're a real believer, but what does Barnabas, the son of encouragement, do? He comes alongside, and he brings Paul to the apostles. He shares Paul's testimony with them, and the very next verse, what you see is that he's moving about freely in Jerusalem. He has freedom to serve amongst the church because someone encouraged him, came alongside and gave help where it was needed. And Paul was writing to the Romans in Romans 12, verses 7 and 8. He says this, if you're serving, then serve. If you're teaching, teach. If you exhort or give encouragement, then do that. If you contribute, do it generously. And some of you, I know when you think of the word encouragement, that feels like a warm blanket, right? It's a good thing, or a cold, cup of cold water on a hot day, let's say. But you think of the word exhortation, and you think that's a stern, you know, those are stern instructions someone's giving you. Well, that word is translated both ways, uh, encouragement and exhortation. And there's something else. It's related to the Holy Spirit. In fact, the word for the Holy Spirit is parakletos, and it means one called alongside to help. It comes from the same word as encouragement, and it means to be an advocate, to be a comforter. Jesus said in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another helper, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. That's the Holy Spirit. John 15, Jesus says when the helper comes. Okay? When, when Jesus goes and he ascends to the Father, now the helper's coming and I'm gonna send you from the Father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 tells us that the spirit actually is praying for us, just like Jesus is praying for us. It says that the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You see what the Holy Spirit is doing, and he is the comforter, the helper, the intercessor, and then you see what Paul is doing in the church, and what you realize is that Paul, who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is doing what Christians are instructed to do as they're walking by the Spirit. He's not fighting with them, he's not judging them, he's not saying things behind their back. What he's doing is he's encouraging the church, and the church is going through tough times. Here's a church that really their lives are on the line. And he's telling them, you can do it. Jesus is with you. He's testifying of Jesus. So spirit indwelt Paul is testifying about Jesus to the church. Think about how you 
you receive encouragement when, when you're going through a hard time, when you're going through a tough time. Think about the things you might be going through right now and, and people come alongside and say, how are you doing? I'm praying for you. Jesus is with you. God is sovereign. He cares for you. In fact, he cares for you so much that you can cast all your cares upon him. In fact, this would be a good moment. To all the cares you brought into this, into this gathering, you could say, Lord, I just, I just cast them on you because you care for me. Isn't that great encouragement? You, I, I believe that you were never more, more spiritual. We want to be spiritual. You're never more spiritual when you are being used by God to sincerely come alongside and help fellow believers in Christ. Because the Spirit of God is the comforter, the helper. And so when Paul is doing this and when you do this, you are being used by God to help where there is need. You're helping, you're blessing, and it's of the Spirit. You don't encourage people in the flesh. Sure, there might be people who go around and say, I'm going to butter people up and I'm going to say things to them so that I will get what I want. That's not biblical encouragement. That's walking by the flesh. But when you are truly wanting to do what God wants you to do and you are seeking to build up the body of Christ and do what the word says, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up even as you are already doing. This is not a one-time occasion. Oh, I encourage someone. Check. By the way, how many of you have been encouraged just this week by a fellow believer? Just a show of hands. We're going we're gonna to be raising our hands, I guess, a few times today. Praise God. So, so I'll give you that too. First Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up even as you are doing. You're excelling in that. People are encouraging you. So go and encourage each other. This is good. It's the idea of, of biblically helpful things that you are able to say to friends who are going through a lot. And Paul is encouraging the church. And then he, in verse one, we see that he says goodbye to them. Literally, he embraces them, saying farewell. He embraces them and departs. I guess Paul was a hugger. Uh, he, he hugs them and, and says goodbye and goes for, to Macedonia. And verse two tells us when he, when he does that, then he goes through other regions and gives them a lot of encouragement too. So everywhere Paul's going, he is encouraging the church. He's loving the church. He's being used by the Spirit of God to build up the body of Christ. We should love the church. You should, if you're a believer, you should love the church. Think about it. The church is the only institution that Jesus ever built and promised to bless. He built one institution, the church, comprised of all those who have come to faith in Christ by God's grace alone. And Jesus said, I will build my church. That's what he said. I like how John MacArthur puts it. He says, I have no desire to build the church because Jesus said he'd build the church and I don't want to compete with him. I had a friend once that was at a, serving at a church, and he was always saying, we're going to grow this church, we're going to build this church, and I'm thinking, something seemed wrong about that. See, we don't grow the church, Jesus grows it, and he uses us in the process. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. You know what that means? The gates of hell, that's a Jewish way of saying death, referring to death. Death. 
Jesus is saying, I am going to build my church and death cannot stop me. And as we know, sitting here in 2016, death did not stop him. He is alive, he is reigning, and soon to return, imminently to return. So what are we to do until then? We are to build up and encourage members of the body of Christ as Jesus is building his church. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, even as you are already doing. Let's put it like this. You want to give blatant spiritual comfort to people. It's what you want to do. You want to go out of your way to plan out, to orchestrate, to trust God to give you the ability to blatantly spiritually comfort people. Now, we get a lot of blatant things coming our way, right? People just give their blatant opinion to us. They, they might be blatantly mad at us. They might be blatantly annoyed at us and all these blatant things that come our way in life, right? I mean, some of you tomorrow morning are like bracing yourself for the blatant onslaught of whatever might be coming your way that isn't encouragement in Christ. Isn't it true? But here, you can give blatant spiritual comfort to one another, to one another, and be used of God to do something that you can't do in the flesh. And give that warm blanket on a cold day and a cup of cool water on a scorching day, spiritually speaking. First thing we see, Paul encouraged the church. His love for the church was so deep, he encouraged the church. Let's move on to the next. We're gonna still stay in verse two and then go on to verse six. The next thing we see is service. We see Paul serving God's purposes as he serves the church. He goes through the regions and gives lots and lots of encouragement and comes to Greece, and verse three tells us he spends three months there. Now the passage I'm looking at today, just these 16 verses we're looking at, really comprise about two years, okay? That's about two years of time. Now the three months in Greece are connected to Paul's time in Corinth over the winter of A.D. 56 to 57. Why? Because in winter, travel basically came to a grinding halt. It stopped. Uh, navigation on the Mediterranean was closed. It was dangerous. And while he was in Greece, the Jews plot against him. Now, he is about to go to Syria on a sailing vessel, and presumably the, the Jews are going to send pirates out there or something, and, you know... Um, intercept the vessel and kill Paul, and so he decides to return through Macedonia instead. And this is a very purposeful decision. There's something he wants to do. He's not just saying, I'm just gonna go this way to get away from the plot. He's like, I'm gonna go this way, and as he's being led by the Spirit of God, he has a plan. He wants to collect money for the poor believers in Jerusalem. That's what he wants to do. He wants to serve the church by having other churches collect money and give money and contribute money to the poor believers that are going through a lot in Jerusalem. Now, when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, uh, he wrote from Corinth before departing for Jerusalem, and Romans 16 tells us that Gaius is his host in Corinth, and what we find out is that he's finalizing the details of the collection for the churches. So Romans 15, 25, here's what he tells them. I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. 
For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. This is why we know what he's doing. For they were pleased to do it, he says. And indeed, they, we, they owe it to them. Interesting wording. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also be of service to them in material blessings. So they're serving the church in a material way, and Paul is coordinating this. Now, shortly before Paul leaves Ephesus, he writes 1 Corinthians, and he writes in 1 Corinthians 16 this, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So he's reminding those in Corinth, you need to do this too. What was it? On the first day of the week, set aside something that you have and store it up as God prospers you so that there's no collecting when I come. Paul's saying, I don't want to make, take a big offering when I get there. You have this ready so we can be fluid with this relief, okay? And so he says, when I arrive, I'm going to send whoever you approve to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And then he says something very interesting. If it is advisable that I should go to, they will accompany me. So according to verse 4, it seems that it was advisable for Paul to go too, because in, in, in Acts 20, verse 4, seven men go with him. Seven men, six of whom have really weird names that you're not going to name your kids. One, you'd name your kids, Timothy, okay? All the rest are uh, pretty wild names. Now, writing from Macedonia, he writes in, to, sec, in, to the Corinthians again, and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, those two chapters are devoted to this collection. It's all about the collection. 2 Corinthians 8, here's what he says. We wanted you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Isn't that amazing that the idea of the service to the church through the giving of the collection um, is, is being called the grace of God that's been given? And then he says this. This is very notable. He says, in a, sincere, a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He says, they gave according to their means, I can testify, also beyond their means. So here are poor believers who have extreme poverty, but they say, no, we want to give. And he even says, they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in this. Like Paul and his companions were saying, no, you're in trouble too. We should be sending you gifts. And they're like, no, please let us do this. And then he says this, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And this was them, here's your model for giving. This was them saying, we want to give really, really bad. We want to help those in need. We want to serve the church. So Paul is setting an example of sacrificial service, giving to others. Uh, the generous giving of the Macedonians blessed the church, served the church. This is what we need to do. We need to, to joyfully give, not like stingily give and being not wanting to, to you know, part with what we hold so dear, but as Paul says, cheerfully, willingly, voluntarily. And there's another part to this. The churches that received the aid didn't say, whoa, whoa, this is from a poor church. Uh, we're not gonna take the money. They received it. There is, there's an idea here of being gracious givers, but also gracious receivers. I know that some of you are like, you know, I want to give, give, give all day long, but please don't try to help me. I can do that on my own. And you really need to say, hey, wait, 
I'm robbing others of the joy of giving if I do that. So there really is an idea here of gracious receiving as well. Serving to meet needs, giving, spending, being spent, as Paul put it. Oswald Chambers, speaking of that verse where Philippians 2.17, where Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, and I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, asks some very pointed questions that I think we would do well to take to heart. Here's what he asks. Are you willing to sacrifice yourself for the work of another believer to pour out your life sacrificially for the ministry and faith of others? Or do you say, I am not willing to be poured out right now, and I don't want God to tell me how to serve him. I want to choose the place of my own sacrifice. And I want to have certain people watching me and saying, well done. He goes on, it is one thing to follow God's way of service if you are regarded as a hero, but quite another if the road marked out for you by God requires becoming a doormat under other people's feet. We take those things to heart. Because what we're seeing here as Paul is loving the church is a, is a model of sacrificial giving and receiving, meeting needs, rallying to help, initiating blessing towards those in need. And then we move on to verse five and really it leads us to the next point, but what we notice here is that, that Luke is now with the group again. The last time we actually uh, saw Luke saying we was when they were in Philippi. Now they're coming, looping back around through Philippi. And so they go on ahead and they're waiting. We are waiting for them at Troas. We sailed from Philippi um, after the days of the unleavened bread. And after five days, we came to them at Troas. We stayed seven days. So Luke is with them. Now, what was the first thing I mentioned about, about Paul and his love for the church? What was the first one? Encouragement. Encouragement. What was the second thing? Service. Here's the third. Fellowship. Fellowship. Now, before you just check out and say, I know what that is, let me just say that most of us don't. Most of us don't. Verses 7 through 12, we'll see this here. At, at Troas, Paul and his companions find a group of believers, and they meet with them to break bread, it says, and to give instruction uh, regarding the Christian life. This is the first clear meeting of a church on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day, not on the Sabbath, not on Saturday. They're meeting on the first day of the week. It's the earliest clear, blatant evidence that we have for Christians gathering for worship on that day. There are several other places in Scripture, John 20, 1 Corinthians 16, Hebrews 10, Revelation 1, where the Lord's Day is the, the day that Christians gather, which is why we gather on Sundays, because of the biblical model. Most likely they gathered in the evening. It says there were lots of lamps in the room and they're working hard all day and they're meeting to break bread, which literally means to celebrate the Lord's Supper. They would have a love feast meal and then they would remember Jesus' death on their behalf. Now our present day concept of, of fellowship is, is a lot different really. We say, oh, we just had fellowship and we discuss everything except the word of God and Christ's work in our hearts and Christ's finished work on the cross. We talk about our jobs, we talk about our school, our friendships, issues, favorite sports teams, the weather, almost anything except what God is teaching us from this word and, and working on in our hearts. Why is that? We have lost, maybe never even had, the idea of what it means to truly have fellowship with other believers. 
And I've said throughout this series in Acts, if we are to reclaim the biblical idea of fellowship, which is caring and sharing Christ-centered community, we have to learn to get beyond the temporary issues and share with each other on a level that's going to deepen spiritual friendships with each other and with God. Now, don't go out today and say, Mike says we can't talk about sports, okay? I'm not saying that. I'm saying, though, go deeper than the surface. I want, to test, I want you to test yourself this week. And in fact, if you'll do this, I'm going to have you raise your hand in a moment again. Would you test yourself as you leave today and maybe you go to a Bible class or when you go to your men's group this week or a women's group or home group this week, test yourself and see what you actually talk about. Will you do that? Will you take that test? I will. Some of you, five of you will? Wow, really? Are you serious? Time out. Really? Come on. You need to test yourself. I'll test myself. And I'm going to ask you, but I'm not preaching next week. I'll be at the men's retreat and... Um, I'm going to ask you on October 30th. I want you to ask me. Someone to come up to me and ask me. What do you talk about when you're in your home group, in your men's group, all this stuff? Because I, I'm just as guilty as anybody of staying on the surface sometimes. But seriously, if true Christian fellowship is Christ-centered, it's not just a bunch of Christians gathering together doing whatever. And you think about some of the things Christians talk about sometimes that God doesn't want them talking about. Now, there's one other part here, too. Sharing material possessions is also a part of fellowship. So what we just saw in serving the church, believers in, in the New Testament time did not limit their fellowship, their, con, their, their concept of koinonia, which is the Greek word for it, to sharing only spiritual things. They shared their material possessions with those in need. We saw that. One of the most common usages in the New Testament of koinonia is the idea of sharing your material possessions with other people. One of the most generous people I've ever met, his name was Pablo Flores. He was a Mexican church planter that we had privilege of starting a church with back in 1995, and we were partnered with them for many years. And we would give things to them, and he would give them all away. And he was very poor, but he would find someone else in need and, and give those things away. Paul urges us to share with God's people who are in need, Romans 12, 13. 2 Corinthians 9, 13, he speaks of your generosity in sharing with others. The writer of Hebrews urges us, do not forget to do good and share with others. And the word share in all of those passages is a, is a translation of koinonia. The church is a place by the way, the church is a place of worship and fellowship because the church gathers somewhere. It's not the place you gather, it's the people who gather. And the people who gather, when you gather together, that ought to be a time of worship and fellowship. Now you might say, well, I could worship God in my own heart, in my own spirit. Paul said that in Philippians 3.3, we worship God in the spirit, yes. You can worship God all alone in your own heart. But you also, as Hebrews 10 tells us, must not forsake the assembly of the believers. And by the way, you're not, you're here. But if you've got a good friend that you can speak truth to who's forsaking the assembly of believers, doesn't it behoove you to go and talk with them? I just used the word behoove, I know. Doesn't that just behoove you to, there I go again. Shouldn't you go and talk with them and say, you know what, this isn't good for you, this isn't good for us. You're part of the body of Christ. We need to gather together. There need to be some times we're gathered together. And we gather on the Lord's Day. 
That's our primary gathering on Sunday. And then we have smaller gatherings throughout the week. And you know why you should do it? Because sure, you can worship God in your own heart, but there is something, first of all, number one, that God says, don't just do that. So that should, be, that should answer it for you. But also, there is a family dynamic that happens when we gather together and share our lives. There is something about a solidarity in worship where, where it, it takes you outside of your own selfish ideas and selfish thoughts and, and says, well, I'm a part of a, of a group of people that are linked in Christ. And there's needs all around me that I could be meeting. And it's not about someone meeting my needs. It's about me initiating as I'm led by the Spirit to meet someone else's need. Let's move on to the fourth. Uh, let's review real quick. The first thing is what? Encouragement. Encouragement. Second thing? Service. Service. Third? Fellowship. Fellowship. You are so awake. <laughs> Number four, teaching. Teaching. Verse 7 again, Paul talks with them, and he, he's going to leave the next day, and he is speaking until midnight. The idea of speaking to them is reasoning with them and discussing with them, with the believers, and he's teaching the word of God to them, and they've got Paul. And it's nighttime, verse 8, there's many lamps in the upper room, and they've been working all day, and, and then we come to the most famous part of this passage, verse 9. There's a young man, Eutychus. So many pastors preach this, and they're like, Oh, you know, I'm going to keep going. They make all sorts of jokes about it and don't fall asleep in church and all that. I'm not going to do that. If you need to sleep, sometimes one of the most spiritual things you can do is take a nap, okay? And if my sermons happen to give you that gift, <laughs> let me just say, God bless you, okay? But a young man named Eutychus is sitting at the window. He's on the third story. He falls asleep. That happens. It's a hot, stuffy room. Heat rises. They're on the third floor. And Luke is a doctor. He knows what happens. He falls down and dies. Verse 10 tells us that Paul goes down, and much like Elijah or Elisha, or even what happened in the Gospels, or even what has happened earlier in Acts, he goes down, and basically God uses him to resuscitate this young man and brings him back from the dead. He's alive now. This is a miracle. Why is this the most famous part of this passage? Because it's miraculous. It's startling, it's shocking, and it's miraculous. It's what happened. And then, and you might have missed this because you get so excited about the miraculous part of it. Look what happens in verse 11. Just, just check this out. So the guy dies. God raises him back to life, uses Paul to do that. And then they go back upstairs and do the bread and the cup. And he talks longer, all the way till morning. Isn't that awesome? I mean, just keep on going. And the, kid, the guy's there. Uh, Eutychus is there. And then verse 12 tells us they take the youth away alive. He's probably a teenager to early 20s. And, and, and it says that they were very encouraged. Wouldn't you be? <laughs> this is awesome. You just had Paul with you. He's teaching the word of God. And somebody got raised to life. It's miraculous. And Paul's teaching him the word. They're hungry for it. They're hungry for it. Now, I'm not going to ask you to stay all night through a preaching service. But Paul, he taught Timothy something that we need to latch on to about being a faithful shepherd of the flock. He says in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. That's very, very clear. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
For he says the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will basically just tell them everything they want to hear and will turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. And I'm so thankful that you don't want to listen to myths and that you don't want to latch on to fairy tales and that you want to hear the word of God and hopefully I can just get out of the way, me or whoever else stands up here can get out of the way enough so that we don't block the message. Really, that's my job here. And you know what Paul said about, about uh, the body of Christ um, and the teaching that happens in the body of Christ? How God gave to the church pastors and teachers and evangelists and apostles and it was for the effectual working of each part in the body that grows, its, that grows and builds itself up in love. And the idea is if you don't hear the word, you're, you're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine and you're not going to be equipped for every good work. And so this is very important. It's very important to be in the Word. It's very important to hear the preaching of the Word, to be equipped for every good work, and then go out and not be tossed to and fro. I love what Jonathan Edwards said. I've shared this quote with you before. He says, the main benefit that is obtained by preaching is by impression made upon the mind in the time of it, and not merely by the effect that arises afterwards by a remembrance of what was delivered. Preaching, in other words, must first of all touch the affections. And only the Spirit of God can do that. God will do whatever he wants in and through us as we yield to him. We can't be driven by our feelings about whatever we're going through in life. We must let the Spirit of God and the Word of God drive. And receive God's Word with open hearts, with receptive hearts and joyful hearts. You know what Paul was doing? He was exercising his God-given gift. God had given him the gift. He was fulfilling his calling. He was exercising his gift. And that's what you need to do. Whatever gift God has given you to build the body of Christ, to serve his purposes, exercise that gift. Fulfill your calling from God. The last four verses basically take us up to where he goes and speaks to the Ephesian elders. He gets on a ship and they go and, and they sail and, and there's many days and he decides to go past Ephesus, which is a wise choice. Because he wants to be in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, which is very, very significant because now it's been about 25 years since the first Holy Spirit Pentecost. So what would he have done in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? Well, he would have delivered the gifts to the church that were sacrificially giving, given, and then he would praise God with the believers for all that God had done in that brief 25-year span up to that point. He's bringing believers from all over the known world at that time, and they're going to say, wow, praise God. When, when Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will lose none of them, Satan will not snatch any, anybody out of my hand. No one's going to slip through the cracks that God has determined to save, and he's bringing these people that God has been saving. This is like us today in 2016 saying, praise God that the gospel works, that God uses the gospel to save us and to grow us. And you know Why? Because Jesus loves his church. And he wants you to love his church. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have first loved us. And thank you, Lord, that you, even if we have 
gotten stale in our love for your, you and your church, we know you can reignite and refresh, re realign that love. And Lord, we want to confess to you that we don't always display a love for your church. So Lord, help us to keep asking ourselves the question, do I love the church? Lord, thank you that you gave your life for the church. Lord, thank you for the new commandment you've given us that we ought to love one another so that others will know that you are the only Savior. Lord, by encouragement, by service, by fellowship, by teaching, by ex exercising our gifts, Lord, help us to focus on, on even one of these things this week and just see what you do. And most of all, Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our encourager. You, you told us, I am with you always. And you are, are the servant of the church. You have came not to be served, but to serve and give your life a ransom for many. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our friend. And we are your friends if we do what you command. And thank you, Lord, for teaching us. We want to give you glory with hearts of gratitude. And we pray in your name. Amen.